your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. We're going to begin reading at verse 18. coming to the end of the second missionary journey of Paul, and we're going to begin the third missionary journey within two verses. I'll point that out to you in a moment. And uh, we're going to encounter uh, Apollos for the first time, and uh, also uh, see what Paul does in Ephesus, and that's going to be the focus of what we talk about today. Acts 18:18. 18, 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, at Kincry, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus." When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, the church being the Jerusalem church. Then he went back to Antioch where his missionary journeys began. And that is the end of the second missionary journey. In verse 23 begins Paul's third missionary journey. After spending some time there, he departed and went from, place, from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, to him, they said Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. May God bless the reading of his holy, inspired, 
and inerrant word. There's an old story that crosses cultural lines of six blind men who, uh, who encountered an elephant. They touched the elephant to see what the elephant is like. And one, man, one, blind, one of the blind men leaning on the side of the elephant says, an elephant is like a wall. And one who was holding the trunk said, no, no, you're wrong. The elephant is like a snake. And this goes on why each blind man who's holding a different part of the elephant's body uh, describe the elephant like a spear or, or who's holding the tusk or a tree who's holding one of the legs or a rope who's holding the tail. Well, people use this story to defend the belief that all religions are the same. Basically, uh, the same thing. They, they simply uh, have a different perspective on things. Another way they put it is to say, all the various religions are just different paths up the same mountains. Uh, you, you eventually reach the top. It doesn't really matter which path you take. Well, on a side note, just because I want to share this, someone turned the story around uh, of the blind men and the elephant and said this. Six blind elephants were discussing what men were like. After arguing, they decided to find one and determine what it was like by direct experience. The first blind elephant felt the man and declared, men are flat. After the other blind elephants felt the man, they agreed. That has nothing to do with what I'm saying today. I just <laughs> thought it was funny. On a number of occasions, I have had uh, non-religious people say to me, I admire people of faith. And what they mean is that they think well of people who practice a religion faithfully. Now, they do not think it matters which religion you practice, uh, so long as you practice it faithfully. That's their their reason for admiring those people. See, they don't, to put it in other words, they don't believe, uh, they don't believe it matters what the object of your faith is. All that matters is the quality of the faith in whatever object you choose. Now, my premise this morning is just the opposite of what I've been describing to you. The most important thing is the object of your faith, not the quality of your faith. The object of your faith is what is most important. Now, in our text today, we have two case studies, and, and these two case studies have something in common. Apollos, on one hand, and, th and these 12 Ephesian disciples who are encountered, who are, who are encountered by Paul, uh, both only know the baptism of John. Now, Paul echoes the gospel writers when he says in verse 4 of chapter 19, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. See, John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus. He was helping people see their sin and their need for the coming Messiah. And so people came confessing their sins and submitting to John's baptism in preparation for the Messiah. And apparently, what we can deduce from this is that some of John's disciples spread out and continued to preach in that vein uh, throughout uh, the Middle East without really identifying Jesus as the Messiah. 
Now this, we might uh, understand this because even John the Baptist, you'll remember that when he was in prison, uh, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he is the one who is to come or should we look for another. So even John the Baptist struggled with identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, probably, and this is speculation on my part, probably because Jesus didn't fit his preconceived notions of what the Messiah would be like. And uh, so he had some questions about that. So Apollos the Alexandrian and these Ephesian disciples had encountered some of John's disciples somewhere along the way and had responded to their limited message. Now there's debate on whether or not Apollos was actually a Christian uh, I would argue that he was not, but there's a good uh, argument to make that uh, he was. I don't think it matters, which I'll explain in a moment. And certainly these Ephesian disciples, these 12 men, were not true Christians because they had not received the Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And just to, to take a moment to, to give you a little instruction on the side here, a uh, little rabbit trail for a moment, about the Holy Spirit. Some people look at this passage and they use it as a defense for uh, a post-conversion experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we would not believe that, that. We believe that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you. And what we have in Acts, uh, when we see these events like Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, where, where the Holy Spirit comes to the church and people speak in tongues and, and prophesy and such. Uh, as people, groups, were penetrated by the, the gospel, the, the event of Pentecost was repeated. So Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So in Acts 2, you have the first Pentecost, and, and all the phenomenon that went with it. And then in chapter 8, you have the Samaritans having that same experience. See? Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then in chapter 10, the Gentiles who are converted have the same experience, the uttermost parts of the world. Now here in chapter 19, you have that same experience being repeated by disciples of John the Baptist who had not been baptized into Christ yet. And I believe this last one is to show that the John the Baptist era was over. Uh, the time for preparation for the Messiah had ended. The Messiah had come. And the Baptist disciples were now enveloped in the church. So when you become a believer, you, uh, you know, all these different experiences by these different people groups were there to reiterate to them and to the church in Jerusalem, the Jews, that these people had the same experience as you and they're just as much a part of the church as you are. The, church, the Holy Spirit came to the church at Pentecost and the others were a demonstration of that to the different people groups. Now, back to the matter at hand. Uh, I don't believe it's a profitable argument to, to have about the salvation of Apollos before he interacted with Priscilla and Aquila or even the Ephesian disciples. The bottom line here is that both of them, both Apollos and these Ephesians, needed to have the object of their faith clarified. 
They needed to have the object of their faith clarified. Both Apollos and these Ephesian disciples were pointed to Christ, to Jesus Christ, as the object of faith, and both Apollos and the Ephesians embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what's important. And it's the question I want you to ask yourself today. The most important question I think that you can ask yourself. What or who is the object of my faith? What or who is the object of your faith? That's the most important question. First point here. It's not the quality of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. Now, suppose you wanted to travel out to Ship Island, and and you were thinking, uh, I'll travel by a skiff, a small boat. And you looked out on the beach here, and there were two skiffs out there. And from a distance, they both looked uh, the same. But on a closer inspection, you see that one of those skiffs has a hole in the bottom. Now, it will not matter how much you believe that the skiff with a hole in the bottom will actually get you to Ship Island. You can believe with all your heart that it will, but it's not going to because there's a hole in the bottom. You will sink. The object of your faith is faulty no matter how hard you believe in it. On the other hand, you may choose the sound skiff while being very unsure of whether it will get you to Ship Island or not. You might be chewing your fingernails off, nervous that that the boat's going to sink at any moment. Your poor faith will not affect that skiff's performance. That skiff will take you all the way out there, and you'll be fine. And it doesn't matter that your faith was in the skiff was poor. You got in the boat. You put your faith in that boat, and it carried you there. And how you felt about it was immaterial. You put your faith in the right boat, not the wrong boat. And that's what we're talking about here. The most important thing in the world is to place your faith in the right object. Christians contend that the, from the Bible that it is faith alone in Christ alone that will save you. Nothing else. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is exclusively the only object of faith that will save you. Now, I would argue that every human being exercises faith, not just religious people. Every human being, every, every person on the planet is staking their eternity on something. Now, even atheists who believe that the universe and humanity exist only by chance They have faith in themselves that they're correct. Uh, They they have to believe things that they cannot prove. Namely, uh, you know, in order to believe in a random creation that that happened because some particles came together to explode the universe into existence, they have to believe that something has always existed. And they can't prove that. You cannot, by science, prove that something came from nothing. That something, uh, you know, you have to believe that something has always existed. That, in other words, matter will have to be eternal. 
And since science can't prove that, you have to take it on faith. And I would contend that it takes just as much faith to believe that as it does to believe that everything was created by uh, God out of nothing. It's both, both are faith commitments. And they're staking their lives on, themse- on that truth that they're embracing just as much as we are on the one that we are. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. Now, if I'm wrong, that's okay, because I'll just be food for worms, and I won't know any difference. But if I'm right and they're wrong, there's problems for them. Now, everyone has faith in something. Everyone is staking their eternity on something. Now, most people we encounter are not atheists where we live. Uh, Most people in our culture believe in heaven, and they believe in God. Most people in our culture make the mistake of believing that their works will get them there. Their good works really are the object of their faith. Now they are making the same mistake uh, of the person who rode in the boat with a hole in it. Your works will not save you. They come short, just like the boat with a hole in it. Some people think that because they go to church and maybe even come on Wednesday night too and maybe they're even in a leadership position in the church that they should be saved. Well, that's just another form of works salvation. You're, you're basing your eternal security on your performance. That's another hole-in-the-boat action. That's another uh, false object of faith. We believe that all you need is Jesus Christ as the object of your faith. In order to be saved, you must be united to Christ by faith. You must believe in Him. You must trust Him. Give yourself to Him. You must have Him in order to be saved. And I'm I'm giving you all those different things because it's hard to understand what we mean. We use these terms often, and sometimes it's not clear what we actually mean by that. Now let me try to illustrate this. Uh, I'm going to say something that it might sound shocking to you, but bear with me. Uh, in order to be saved, you must marry Jesus. You must be married to Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. The Lord relates to his people covenantally through a covenant relationship. And the most obvious covenant relationship in our experience is marriage. Now, uh, the Bible uses that imagery to describe the relationship God's people has with Christ. Jesus Christ is the groom and his people are the bride. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a man, you're the bride. Uh, you take that uh, identity. We look at it from the bride's perspective as the people of God. Now, let's think about uh, a wedding uh, and, and marriage. When the bride marries the groom, she becomes united to the groom. I did a wedding last weekend, and uh, I used those words. The two become one flesh. They become a family, a unit, one flesh. When believers become Christians, they become part of the body of Christ. They're united to Christ. He is always with them because the Spirit of Christ dwells in them, just like these Ephesians believers encountered. The Spirit came upon them. The bride takes the groom's name. 
When a person believes in Jesus, they take Christ's name. They become a Christian. The bride becomes part of the groom's family. Believers are adopted into the family of God. When someone gets married, the the groom's property becomes the bride's property. Now what does Jesus have? He has perfect righteousness. He has a sacrificial payment for sin on the cross to his credit. He has victory over death by his resurrection. And when a person marries Jesus, when they put their faith in Jesus, they get credit for all that Jesus has. That righteousness is imputed to them, credited to their account. Their sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done. And they have victory over death, like Judy's enjoying today, uh, because of what Christ has done in rising from the grave. And the bride and the groom, when they get married, they're committed to one another. The bride lives in relationship to the groom. She doesn't, goes, she, she doesn't go through life uh, whatever she wants without consideration of her husband. Well, she might. <laughs> but it's not a very successful marriage if she does. A Christian is someone who lives in consideration of Christ in everything. Christ is in all your life, in all your decisions, every moment of every day. Now, you imagine a bride, and, and maybe you, we can imagine this because it happens sometimes, but imagine a bride who only wanted the groom's stuff but didn't really want the groom. Didn't want to have anything to do with the groom. It's not a good marriage. And this is the problem I've seen in so-called Christianity today. People want to have the benefits that Jesus gives, but they really don't want Jesus. They don't love Jesus. They simply want some cheap fire insurance. And that's why we must understand what saving faith looks like. So I see a lot of people today say, oh yeah, you know, I walked an aisle down back when I was a kid, or I prayed a prayer, or I did this, or I did that, or I did, or I did this, or I'm that. It has nothing to do with you other than you putting your faith in the proper object, Jesus Christ and his work of salvation. Saving faith looks like you marrying Jesus and being united to him forever. And that's when we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't just pull him out when we want him around. If you're a Christian, he's with you always. And he's your Lord and your Savior. If you have him, you have everything that you need. Your life revolves around him. He will provide everything you need because you're his bride and he loves you. He will care for you and provide for you for eternity. There's no divorce in this relationship. That's the good news. Are you trusting Christ today? Is he the object of your faith? Or are you putting all your eggs in your your own basket of works and religious performance or, or anything else for that matter? Can you say, I have Christ, and I want Christ, and I love Christ, and I want to follow him? Now, one more quick point. Very quick. Second point. The quality of your faith is improved by knowing the object of your faith better. And that's what we see here, especially with Apollos. 
these and the Ephesians were at least they were at least on the right track in pursuing the Messiah. We don't really know the extent of their knowledge of Jesus Christ because they only knew the baptism of John. But they were looking in the right direction for an object for their faith. They simply needed to come to a clearer understanding of who the Messiah was, Jesus, as Paul points out. Priscilla and Aquila explain that uh, more accurately about Jesus to Apollos and his faith was deepened. All that he knew about the scriptures came into focus on Christ. And you can see how that would deepen his faith because now he knows better what it is that he believes and he knows better about what Christ provides for his people. He knows better about everything, about the relationship between Christ and his bride. And the Ephesians were informed by Paul about Jesus and they were baptized into the name of Jesus. It's like getting married. They were united to Christ in this rite of baptism. They put their faith in Jesus, not just as the promised Messiah, but the one who has come and has provided the way of salvation. This was a deepening of their faith and placing it in the proper and specific object. Now people say all the time that they need to grow in faith, yet how many people really understand what it means to grow in their faith. I guess they think it's just going to happen magically. But here the secret is laid out for us in the example of Apollos and these Ephesian disciples. Get to know the object of your faith better. Get to know Jesus better. Learn about who he is and what he's done and is doing and will do for his people. Learn about his love and grace and mercy. Plumb the depths of his character and person. When you have a strong knowledge of him as the object of your faith, then you will have a strong faith. That's how it works. Come to Sunday school. Come to church. Come on Wednesday nights. Get involved in a Bible study. Read and study the scriptures at home and with your families because that's where we find Christ revealed in the, in the text. Taste and see that the Lord is good and you will find that your love for the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, increasing and your faith stronger. May the Lord grant us grace for that to happen in all of our lives. Let's pray together.